And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, our theme verse for today's Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. In this episode, you'll see Jesus exercise spiritual authority over a deaf and mute spirit in a young boy. And we'll learn together how we can exercise the spiritual authority given to us by God in our lives and the lives of those around us. The series is called Extraordinary. Today's episode, Spiritual Authority. Here's Associate Pastor J.C. Thompson. Well, good morning. Woo! Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, We are continuing our series entitled Extraordinary. Uh, Who said hey to me? Hey. I'm so glad you're in here. Uh, We are joined by some young people today. Our young people are coming back from camp. They're going to be here this afternoon. If you could, if I could ask you something as one of your pastors here, uh, once these kids go to camp, there's some movement that happens in their life spiritually. And when they come back, we in youth ministry world and student ministry world, we understand that that next six to eight weeks of their life into reentry is extremely important. You know, you remember the parable of the soils? You remember that parable of the sower? Is he is throwing seed out, which is our responsibility and job, and then there's a, ter- a certain type of seed that the enemy wants to snatch that seed away? Well, our ro- role and responsibility as a church over the next six to eight weeks is to pray that the enemy doesn't snatch any seed that's been planted this week, okay? So we are asking uh, for you to join us in that partnership as we pray over the next six to eight weeks for our young people, uh, as they've been hearing the Word of God uh, in Central Tennessee, okay? Can y'all do that with me? Will y'all agree to do that with me? Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, good. Well, we have been in a series entitled Extraordinary, and we are looking at Jesus, who is an extraordinary God-man, and his interactions with his disciples, who are very ordinary. In fact, it's probably the most striking part of who they are, is how ordinary they are. And we are searching for ways in which we can learn to live in the life that God calls us to live in through his son, Jesus, and how maybe if God is willing for us to experience the extraordinary in our own lives. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 today. You can go ahead and turn there. If you got the the BAB, the Bible available at Brookwood, we're going to be on page uh, 810 today. And while you're turning there, you know, when I was a young person in middle school and high school, we used to wear these bracelets in church world, and they had four letters on them. Uh, Does anybody know these bracelets? Anybody know what these letters were? WWJD. And I remember as a young person going, this is great. I'm going to look down at my wrist, and I'm going to remember in each of these situations, what would Jesus do? And as a young person, I'm filled with excitement. I'm filled with a calling. I'm going to do what Jesus does in each of these situations. And then what you realize really quickly is you come into situations and you don't know what Jesus would do. Or you realize, I can't do what Jesus can do in this situation. And you feel where there is this element of truth to these bracelets that we should put on the minds of Christ, right? We should be so enriched by the Word of God that we know what Jesus would do in situations. We also read the Bible and figure out, I don't know what Jesus is doing in some of these situations when we read it. I'm talking about he spit into the ground and rubbed it in a man's face. I don't know that that's what Jesus 
wants me to do in these situations. And sometimes he would say stuff that I would never get away with. And so we find ourselves in these moments where this is a powerful truth to remind ourselves that we should be entering into every situation and conversation as Jesus would. We also are learning through this series, Jesus is not like us. He's different than us. He's other than us. And so for me, we're looking at one of these instances today where Jesus once again shows his disciples he's not exactly like them. He's something more than them. He's extraordinary. But Jesus had given his disciples a job description a couple chapters earlier in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He just said this, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never gotten a job description like that before. Most of mine is like have some skills in Microsoft Word and Excel ability to solve problems, can communicate with others well, team player, but never can work with someone and cast out evil spirits. I don't know if y'all have similar jobs that I have applied to before, but that was not really my job description. That seems like a big deal. And then what happened is, as we see in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, read this, and they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. In other words, this big job description, which to us seems like this is a little crazy, they found success in the thing that God had called them to do. The responsibilities that God gave them, the disciples were successful in them. Now, I don't know about you, but in these moments where God has called you to do something incredible, amazing, and you think there is no way in the world that God would have me do that, and then you see God work, you see God move in a way that can only be explained by him, Y'all ever been in a situation like that? You start to get your chest puffed out a little bit, right? Fellas, y'all been here before. You start going to the gym. You haven't been in a long time. Or maybe you go all the time. I don't know. But then like your body starts to like shift just a little bit. Maybe you've only been a couple times and you're going, look at, you know, you're looking at your spouse like, hey, look at me, look at me right now. And your spouse knows you've only been in the gym a couple times. Like what in the world is happening? But you do. You start walking around different, right? You start feeling different about yourself. You start thinking, man, God has called me to do something big, and now he's moving in my life. There's nothing I can't do, right? We've all been there before. You probably feel a little bit like a superhero. Well, in this story, I imagine that's what the disciples were feeling. And then they got a little proud of themselves. Their chest was puffed out a little too much. Now, if you saw Jesus doing something incredible, like asking you to go cast out demons and heal people, and then you saw demons cast out and people healed, you would be pretty confident just like the disciples. And so today, we're going to look at how these disciples responded, and specifically, we're going to look at, uh, title today's message, Spiritual Authority. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to exercise spiritual authority? And how did the disciples do it? And how did they fail at doing it? So if you got your outline, you can pull that out. Exercising spiritual authority involves confronting chaos. Confronting chaos. Now earlier in Mark chapter 9, Jesus pulled a few of his disciples aside, Peter, James, and John, and he asked them to come with him. And he takes them up a mountain to be alone with them. And in this moment, a moment that we will learn about later in our series, 
uh, we see this event called the Mount of Transfiguration, this moment where two men who are dead are become not dead on the mountain, and they're talking to Jesus, and the disciples are onlookers. These three men are onlookers into this incredible moment in time, okay? And so they come down from the mountain after that. I just can't imagine what it would be like to come down out of the mountain after that. Like you just saw people who are like not normal people, like they're on the list of people that you have a million questions for and you know everything about their life because these two men are cornerstones of the Jewish faith. And yet, you've got to come back down and re-entry into regular normal life. And so as Jesus comes back down, there is a situation of chaos that he enters into. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they return to the other disciples, I love that Mark doesn't name them. Now, please understand, this is uncommon for Mark. He actually loves to name the disciples that messed up. That's kind of like a calling card for him. He's very clear. These guys really messed this up and usually names them. But in this situation, he just calls them the other disciples. So when they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. So Jesus comes down off of this mountain where his presence is changed visually in front of Peter, James, and John and enters into what is essentially a debate between the scribes and the rest of the disciples. They are arguing with one another. Jesus, immediately upon coming into the situation, gets straight to the heart of the matter in this chaos by asking, what is all this arguing about? Now, I want to be clear, we've got to remember what's happening in these stories. If not, we'll just get to the dialogue and forget what the scene is. Jesus is coming down from this mountaintop experience with his disciples. I don't know if you've ever been to a retreat or you've had some specific significant spiritual milestone in your life. And while it fills you with joy and happiness and excitement, it's also utterly exhausting. You know, these kids who come back from camp, they're going to be exhausted when they come back. And God did amazing things in their midst, but when they get back, they're going to be tired. And so I could just imagine if I were like Jesus, which I'm not Jesus, but if I were like him, I would be tired. And then I come into an argument immediately after this experience, that would frustrate me. But Jesus didn't get frustrated. Even though he was thrust into this combative situation between the scribes and the disciples, I want you to see how intentional Jesus is with what he does. Now, he doesn't sit by and just wait for him to figure it out. He also doesn't do what many of us do and just tell them to stop arguing with each other. Anybody been there? You know, somebody's got a significant disagreement about something, and rather than try to solve the disagreement or resolve the relationship, we just tell them to be quiet. Just stop it. It's not worth it, is what we say. Just stop it. That's not what Jesus does. No, he gets in the middle of this situation, and he seeks for all of the people in the crowd, both the onlookers, the scribes and the disciples to all come to him for the solution. Now, this is what we've got to do as disciples of Christ. It's one thing to get 
into a situation where there's an argument going on. It's another thing to bring our own methodologies into that argument. But as followers of Christ, we are bringing God's Word all the time into these situations. And what should be most important for us as followers of Christ when there's a situation of chaos or disagreement is coming to understand what does God's Word say about this? What does God have to say about this? In fact, it's a powerful question, a powerful discipleship question that you can use with your kids or your small group. A very simple question to ask. It's just this, what does God have to say about this? What does God have to say? My mom used to ask me that question all the time. It frustrated me every time she asked it. Because I would say, why don't you just tell me what God has to say? And she would say, no, you need to go find out for yourself. And I'd go to God's Word and I'd turn through and I'd come back to her and I'd say, well, here's what God said. She was like, yeah, that's what God says. Now, what are you going to do about what God said? And I go, I guess I'll do what he said. You know, it's just that, it's that moment of discipleship and understanding. It's not about what we have to say about these issues. It's about what God has to say. And so it's not even your skill sometimes in being able to solve these arguments. It's just about bringing people's attention back to what does God have to say? Verse 17. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Greek word there is stiff, almost like he's dead. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I think it's important to note that while Jesus asked everybody what was the argument, it wasn't the disciples who told them what the disagreement was. It wasn't the scribes who were arguing with Jesus. It was this man who works his way through the crowd to tell Jesus the context of the argument. And the context was, my son, I brought my son to your disciples to be healed. And they couldn't do it. Now, I think it's important for us to understand why there's an argument between the scribes and the disciples. See, the scribes who were understood and studied and experts in religious law would oftentimes be sent out to confirm that a miracle of healing had happened. And so, I'm not sure that they were preemptively there. They probably were there to review something and came upon this situation when the disciples were trying to exercise this demon out of this boy. And you can imagine, as they are there to confirm God's work miraculously in the world, you could imagine how they felt when they saw Jesus' disciples, who were creating a bit of a stir, fail to do their job. You could imagine them saying all kinds of things. This guy you're following, is he really even telling you the truth about who he is? Why couldn't you do what he's asked you to do? You can imagine them pulling all these things out. Quit creating a stir. These aren't miracles. You don't have the ability to perform these miracles. You could just imagine this argument. And the disciples, understanding this truth, that God had called them to do amazing things, and having the experience that they've done some of those things that Christ has asked them to do, and yet the shame 
of failing in this moment. You could imagine the tension inside of them as they're arguing. No, Jesus is who he says he is. We're not sure why we couldn't cast this demon out. You could imagine this tension. And so whether it's because the scribes really didn't want to argue with Jesus because that hasn't gone well with them before when they get Jesus to talk to them, or if it's because the disciples feel so much shame and embarrassment at not being able to cast this demon out of this boy, whatever the reason is, this man, father, who is suffering steps in and says, here's what's going on. Now, Jesus says something very strong here. He says, you faithless people. Who do you think Jesus is talking to here? Come on. There's more than three of you out there. I can see you. You can't hide. I see you out there. Who do you think Jesus is talking to? Okay. Here's the thing. I want to be honest with you. I think it's pretty clear to me in this passage that Jesus is speaking straight to the disciples. I think he's most concerned about their faith. He didn't tell all the crowd to go out and exercise demons and heal people. He told his disciples to do that. And I think this specific evidence that he's talking to the disciples is clear. I think he's trying to emphasize time. How much time am I going to be with you? you got to get this figured out quickly because I'm not going to be here forever. Okay? Now, it's possible that that's a generalization to the crowd, but I really think Jesus here is speaking directly to his disciples. Because of the group of people represented, who are the people that should have faith? The disciples. They've been with Jesus. They've experienced miraculous, extraordinary things. And yet he's sorrowful over their lack of faith. We see in this response from Jesus that he has a desire to finish his work here on the earth and a sorrow over his disciples' unbelief. I mean, think about it. Jesus was gone for less than a day. And when he comes back, failure, that's the first thing. And yet Jesus doesn't shame them. He just states the truth, which is, Why do you have so little faith? It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of experience. It's not a lack of knowledge. What is it? See, the disciples should have responded in faith again. They shouldn't have lived out of this overflow of past victories in their life. They should have went straight to God for this situation. But instead, I think they relied on their own power. And I think that's a temptation for us in this room. You see, if we're not careful, we'll rely on the things that we've done in the past as things that will work. Or we'll take something that God said to us about something else and we'll misappropriate that to a situation that we we find ourselves in today. But our job is to be dependent upon God. That when we come upon situations of chaos or conflict, our first step should be to come to God and say, God, what, what do you want me to know about this? What, what are we doing here? What's, what's my role to play? And so we need to be enriched by God's Word continually so that we know what God has to say about these situations that we come into. How do we do that? How do we know the truth about all these things? How do we know the truth about what's a physical world and yet there are spiritual things happening in here? How how do we know that? Well, we go to the source. We go to God. We go to Jesus. We go to His Spirit. 
You know, Peter, when he was revealed who Jesus truly was, one of the things that he said in John chapter 6, verse 68 was this. He said, you have the words that give eternal life. Peter connected that the words that Jesus was saying, there was power associated with those words. There was truth associated with those words. And we must do the same thing. Now, if you'll be patient with me, I love to grill. Love it. In fact, when I read about a pleasing aroma to the Lord, I think about me in front of my big green egg. That's what I think about. And I think about how God is so pleased with what I am preparing for my family or my friends. And so I, I want to help you see one of the purposes of God's Word. One of the purposes of God's Word is like a marinade. And a marinade serves many purposes, okay? One, it tenderizes the meat. In other words, if you've ever gotten a tough, lean cut of meat and you try and cook it real fast, like it doesn't get less tough or less lean. But a marinade applied over time makes a very tough protein pliable, a little bit more tender to eat. Another thing a marinade does is it provides flavor. Now, I can tell you, you could put a marinade on, it could be really bad. So this is not like a universal principle that it will be a good flavor, but it will provide some flavor. Uh, and I think different types of meat need different types of flavors. I think they just marry well together. And then the last thing that a marinade does is it improves the effectiveness of the cooking process. There's some magic in the marinade when you apply heat to a protein that's been marinating. It magically enhances that whole process. I think the Word of God is just like that. I think it makes our tough very lean heart, very pliable and tender towards others. I think it provides a picture of life that makes life more intriguing, more exciting, and more pleasurable. And I think the purpose that we are called to live out becomes more effective when we are marinating in the words of Christ. I just believe that. Now for me, I, I'm thinking through when we're put into these situations, when we come a upon somebody's chaos, when we get involved into somebody else's conflict, are we in a place because of the time that we've spent with God where we can enter into those situations of chaos at peace? Can we do that? I think your regular rhythms of time with God, your rather re regular rhythms of spending time in rest, both things that Jesus did, give you the capacity to enter into these hard situations at ease. But the question is, are you spending those regular times in God's presence? Are you surrounded by a group of people who are helping you see God's Word in the many situations in life? Have you spent time in God's presence so that you are ready when chaos comes to exercise your faith? Jesus was. If we're going to exercise the authority that Christ has given to us, we must step into conflicts knowing the truth of God for that situation. The second thing when it comes to exercising our spiritual authority involves a compassion for suffering. A compassion for suffering. Now remember, this boy's father steps out in the midst of this argument and he tells Jesus, here's what's been happening. He shares with Christ the situation. Verse 20 in Mark chapter 9. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, 
It threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us. And don't miss this, if you can. When the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy immediately into the ground. See, the mere presence of Jesus provoked a violent response from this evil spirit. I think it's just important for us to note. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus as a moral teacher or a motivational speaker. Can I just be honest with you? Motivational speakers don't provoke violent responses from evil spirits. They just don't. They're not worried about whatever the newest book is, not worried about whatever sticker you put on your stuff to remember whatever advice they just gave you. No, this spirit violently responded to Jesus because Jesus came to earth to destroy those evil spirits and rescue humanity from the presence of evil. That's what he came for. So why did he violently respond? Because he knew Jesus was there to destroy him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to be your master teacher. He came to rescue you from the dominion of sin and evil in this world. That's why he came. And the spirits knew that about Jesus. The mere sight of Jesus Christ caused this spirit to react in such a way to try and kill this young boy. Now, it could have been very easy for Jesus to have healed him right then and there. But in the moment, and remember, you've got to place yourself in this situation. This boy is being thrown to the ground and is suffering, not just in front of the dad and Jesus, but in front of the scribes, the disciples, and the onlookers. This is a public display of evil. And Jesus, rather than heal him, he asked the father a question. He asked, how long has this been happening? Why did Jesus ask that question? Did he not know? Of course he knew. He's Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He didn't sacrifice his omniscience by becoming human. He knew how long this has been happening. Could have been a number of things. Maybe he wanted to see where this father's heart was at towards his son. It could have been the amount of time just to, so the crowd could hear how much time this problem has been happening. It also could have been for Jesus to understand the depth of suffering, for him to have that father unfold his heart in front of Jesus. See, I think Jesus wanted to be so closely connected to this suffering father that he asked him this question. And you notice the dad didn't just answer the question that Jesus asked. He offered more than what Jesus asked. He didn't just say how long this had been happening since childhood. He also described the consequences, the circumstances in which this evil spirit was tormenting his son. He said since childhood, which was the answer to the question that Jesus asked. But he shared a little extra. He's been throwing him into the fire to try and kill him. He's been trying to drown him his body. And I just think at this moment it's important for us to understand 
that while Jesus knew the answer to this question, hearing the Father's recollection of His Son's suffering would have connected those two men together, Jesus and this Father. It's the same thing for us in this room as disciples of Christ. Oftentimes, we think we need to help people fix their issues. And Jesus did not immediately fix this father's and his son's issue. No, he met them where they were. And what happens is the father opened up his heart to Jesus. And he shared, here's what's going on in my life. See, as followers of Jesus, that's part of our role. Our role is to be present with people, to listen to them when they are suffering, when they are struggling, not to jump to a solution. Because what Jesus recognized is more important than healing this boy's suffering was capturing this father's heart. Now, does that mean that he minimized the boy's suffering? No, Jesus came to end all suffering. That's what he came for. And one day, if you're in here and you have been dealing with a chronic issue of suffering, one day you'll be fully healed because of Jesus Christ. But this evil, everyone had to look at. Kids in here, let me talk to you real quick. I know y'all came in here, so I better talk to you, right? Uh, Sometimes your parents ask you what's going on in your life, and it's sometimes the same question because we're not super creative when we get old, okay? So we just say like, hey, how's it going? Or hey, how was your day, right? And you're like, mom and dad, you've asked me this a hundred million times, and you get frustrated about it, right? And sometimes your parents even ask you questions that they know the answer to. But can I help you with something, kids? You, when your parents are asking you these questions, they're asking you to go deeper in relationship with them, okay? And it is your responsibility to unfold your heart with your parents. They're trying to draw it out, but you got to unfold it for them, which means you got to share how you feel about things. you got to share some of the stuff that happened, some of your own failures. You need to share those things. Parents, let me talk to you. Listen, when your kids are younger, I hope, and I know this church, so I know this, y'all are spending intentional time with your kids to learn them, to understand them, okay? And when they're younger, you control their schedule. And so you control those rhythms of time. And you get regular time with your kids. When they start to get a little older, you're not in control of their rhythms anymore. And so we instruct parents of high school students, specifically parents of teenagers and young adults, that there will be times when your kids come to you and they're ready to talk. It won't be all the time, and it won't be on your schedule. It will be when they're ready. And we instruct parents that while you schedule times to talk with your kids when they're younger, you have to be completely responsive to them when they get older. You have to drop everything to talk to kids when they're teenagers and young adults. It may be 2 o'clock in the morning when they're ready. It may be in the middle of a family vacation. And whatever time it is, you drop absolutely everything to listen to your child. You have to be responsive to their needs when they get a little older. 
man, as the church, we have got to do that with suffering people. We've got to come alongside them. And we have some people at this church who are suffering. You know, I think about even this morning before everybody got here, there's a husband whose wife is struggling with cancer. Think about a husband and wife who are trying to figure out how to run their business in a way that honors God. I think about our special needs families who are trying to get here to church every single Sunday so that their kids can be loved on and that they can grasp at the crumbs that God might have for them that day. There's a lot of people suffering in our church, and it's our role to come alongside them and to spend time with them and to listen to them and to hear what that suffering really looks like. And that's our role. See, Jesus is not just concerned about what ails you. He's concerned with how you carry that burden. I'll say that again. Jesus is not just concerned about what ails you. He's concerned about how you're carrying that burden. He's not some impersonal force of healing hovering around. He is a person. And he is concerned with you as well as your situation. And he calls us to be concerned with those things as well. In fact, Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, since God chose you, which I love this. I know sometimes we we gloss over things like this. But like, they don't let kids pick teams anymore because somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. They don't do that. But God chose you. Like when he's assembling his team, he picked you to be a part of it. He picked you to be on his team in mission with him. He chose you before the foundation of the world to join him in his work. And what does that work look like? Well, he chose you to be the holy people that he loves. And in order to do that, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And just pop quiz, how many of those words or characteristics have anything to do with an actual skill? None. It has to do with our character. And those qualities grow out of our relationship with Christ. So when you're faced with someone who's suffering or down and out or isolated from society, do you respond in kindness and compassion towards them as Jesus did? Or do you neglect them or show them contempt for bothering you? In order to exercise our spiritual authority, we also must have confidence in our calling. Confidence in our calling. After Jesus hears the situation of this boy and his father and solidifies the connection that he has with this dad, Jesus responds to this father's proposition, that phrase that that father asked at the end, if you can. Jesus responds to that in this way. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. See, Jesus here wants to make sure he lets this man know it is not because of Jesus' capacity to heal this boy, to cast out this demon. It's faith. It's the very reason why the disciples failed in being able to cast out this demon. But did this man have faith that Jesus could heal his son? See, it's important to understand here that Jesus is not just giving a personal response. He is also teaching publicly. 
So while he's having this conversation with the Father, everyone is listening to the things that Jesus is saying. And so he is sharing with the crowd of scribes, disciples, and onlookers that the most important thing for us as human beings is our faith in God himself. That's what we must be concerned with. He is instructing everyone that our faith is what matters most. Verse 24, the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. This is such a wonderfully sweet, encouraging picture of what faith in Christ looks like. See, he had just seen the disciples fail in providing the solution to his son's suffering. His son has been suffering for years, watching an evil spirit torment your child. He does not want his lack of faith to be the reason why his son does not get healing. But this man also recognizes he does have a little bit of faith. So he begs Jesus not to heal his son, but to increase his faith. Man, he truly recognizes what Jesus just instructed him. It's not about my ability, Jesus said. With faith, all things are possible. And so this man asked him, Jesus, I have faith, but if, I am, if my faith is in any way imperfect, if my faith is lacking, Jesus, please increase, bolster, support, strengthen my faith. You can hear the desperation in this father's plea. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Which means for us, Jesus is concerned with the timing of his work. Remember, he's got a purpose. He came to earth to seek and to save the lost. He came to destroy the kingdom of evil and usher in the kingdom of God. And he's going to do that through his death on the cross. But timing matters. And so as this crowd continues to grow, he's not trying to create too much of a stir so that they'll want to make him king of the land. But instead, to heal this boy, end the father and son's suffering with this circumstance, and not provoke the crowd to too large of a response to where his kingdom is ushered in before it's supposed to be ushered in. Which means we need to also be asking, what is God's timing in that situation? Because here's what's true. That little boy's healing, it's always coming if there's faith. Always. It may not be at the time that everybody wants it, but the healing is coming. And Jesus knew that. He knew that. It's the same in our situations. One day we will cross over and we will ultimately be healed. And not only will we be healed of these temporary things that we're dealing with in our lives, but we, we will be healed from ever having to deal with the presence of sin ever again. Ultimate, full, whole healing from Christ. 
And so here's what Jesus did. He said, listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him in again. Then the spirit screamed. He threw the boy into another convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. The crowd growing was Jesus' cause for the timing of this healing. He wasn't ready to usher in the kingdom fully yet, and so he waited. And yet, it can feel so difficult when we are struggling so greatly to not have Jesus heal our circumstances yet. Do I believe that God heals today? I absolutely do. Do I believe that he heals miraculously? I absolutely do. But we've got to ask ourselves the question, do we have the same authority that the disciples do? Do we have the same job description that they did? And also, do we have the same capacity for healing that Jesus does? So first of all, to kind of untangle this a little bit, first, we must recognize that we are followers of Jesus Christ first. He is our authority. We do what he says. What he says goes. So our authority is not the same as Jesus Christ's authority. We must separate those two. He is God and we are humans. And so he's got different authority than we do. And we'll see a little bit later how that plays itself out. Second, there's a particular call to Jesus' disciples in the world at that period of time that's not the same call to us. And also... The devil was a little more concerned about Jesus than he is about us. So his work was way more external during the time of Jesus Christ than it is during our times. Now, do I believe there's demonic activity in our world? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. In fact, I've been watching this show, Stranger Things. Some of you may watch it, some of you not. I think there's a picture in that show that is very closely to what demonic activity looks like in our world. And it is these evil spirits whispering about past moments of trauma and also about our own failings. And Satan, who is the deceiver, continues to whisper to you untruths about who you are. Things like, that sin's not really forgiven. Things like, you're not really a child of God. You can't come back from this. I think we deal with those things today. And it's why we must cling to Christ and realize that while our faith is exactly how God works in our world, it is not the measure of our faith, but is the object of our faith that truly matters. Christ is enough. And your faith, even if it's small, is enough for God to use. But God has given us some authority. He's given us a role and responsibility to play in this world, and he's given us the down payment of adoption. The Holy Spirit indwells us as followers of Christ. And so we do have a role to play in his kingdom. Today, you have a role to play. In fact, Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 4, verse 11. He says it this way. He says, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. 
See, our service to God is authorized by God giving gifts to us. And those gifts are meant to build up the church. That's why part of our role is to exercise the gifts that he gives to us. It's our authority to exercise those gifts as God has given to us. But I think it's important for us to also understand that God has given us a particular purpose and a particular method for using those things. Our service, while it's authorized by God, by giving gifts to us, it is also for those who've been born again for the direct purpose of building up the church. That's our role. But I want you to be careful in taking verses that are applied to a specific group of people and making them apply to you. Okay? You you hear what I'm saying to you? So when Jesus gave a job description to those 12 disciples, that was to those 12 disciples. Doesn't mean you don't have a job description. It just means your job description is a little bit different. You have a calling, but it may not be the same calling as all the individuals that we see in Scripture. What has God called you to do? If you don't know that, that's what you need to spend time figuring out today. What has God called me to do? Are you following the call that God has on your life or are you running from it? The last thing when it comes to exercising our spiritual authority is recognizing that it's contingent on God's work. It's contingent on God's work. Verse 28, afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Now, this is a private moment. Jesus takes his disciples away, and they have a moment of discipleship. And so, I'm so thankful for this picture that Mark gives us because the disciples, rather than hide in their shame of failure, they ask Jesus, what do we do wrong? Help us understand. Why could we not cast out this evil spirit from this little boy? And so after their failure, they ask this question and they ask Jesus to assist them the next time they find themselves in this situation. And they are really trying to understand why did they fail? And so for me, I I think it's important for us to understand the disciples did one thing wrong. It's not necessarily the method of prayer, which I believe that this is what's calling us to do, but it's also their lack of faith that caused them to fail. Do you know why? Prayer is a completely dependent activity. It's completely dependent. I mean, you can make an argument that when you read God's Word, your skill set in being able to understand the words, being able to understand past knowledge of certain things, you can make an argument that there's a little bit of your own skill set involved. However, the Scriptures teach us, unless the Spirit enlivens the Word of God, unless He illuminates it, then we won't get it anyway. So that's still the Spirit's work, but there's a temptation there. Prayer's not like that. Prayer is completely dependent on God's activity. And what Jesus was trying to share with his disciples is that God's work is not accomplished based on our past experiences, our incredible skills, or anything else in this world other than God himself working. Now, the disciples more than likely had been to the gym a couple times. They had healed some folks, cast out some demons, and they were feeling real good with themselves. And so they said, yeah, Jesus, you have fun on the mountaintop. We're going to be fine. And then immediately 
dependent on their own abilities, strengths, and experiences. Isn't that just like us? In fact, if you don't think that's common, I'll point you to another mountaintop story where Moses went to the mountain to get the law of God. And then when he came back down, even though he was gone for just a short period of time, the entire Israelite people had decided to throw all of their gold stuff in a melting pot and literally made this golden calf. Y'all remember that? When left to our own devices, we spiral out of control. Jesus was trying to teach the disciples, you will never reach a point in your life where you can do this on your own. You need prayer. See, this failure, it will be what we experience if we attempt to do God's work in our own power. But God's work is only accomplished through faith. Faith that is alone empowered by God. This man's little faith that he acknowledged may be incomplete, may be lacking, may be weak, was enough to see God miraculously heal his son by exercising the demon that was inside of him. It was not the disciples' faith. It was not the faith of the religious leaders It was the faith of a suffering father that God used to exercise this spirit. Today, it is the same for us. Prayer and God's word should be our primary tools of ministry. Do you know why those are our primary tools? Because God tells us those what our primary tools are. We do what God says. We have to do God's work accomplished in God's way by God's people. And we must get all three of those things right. You will be tempted to sacrifice one of those things. It may be a temptation to sacrifice God's work and work on your own stuff. It may be a temptation to do work in the way that you think is best rather than the way that God prescribes work to be done. Or it may be you want to use whoever is the most skilled rather than the people that God has provided to you. Have you been trying to accomplish God's work in your life, in your own power? Are you someone who's tempted to seek the credit that only God deserves for the work that he's done in your life? And one more thing to notice here right before we leave. Jesus told the disciples that these, these kind of spirits only come out by what? Prayer. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus pray that spirit out? No. He talked directly to that spirit. Whoa, 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 JC, you're doing this right before we leave. Let's slow down a little bit. What you, you just said, Jesus said, those kind only come out by prayer. Yeah, for us. Jesus didn't need to pray. Jesus is God. And not only did they violently respond to his presence, they do what he says. See, Jesus is not ordinary. He's more than that. And while he chose sacrificially to become like us, he's also unlike us. And so while for us, Ordinary people, we pray, we depend on God to work. Jesus works. 
And that demon responded quickly to the words of God himself. Why can we have faith in Jesus Christ? Because we recognize that he has authority over the earth. He has authority over the earth. And that whatever situation that we come into, God knows what to do. And God has the power to use whatever we face for his purpose. But if you are tempted to live your life under your own power, you will miss God's extraordinary work in your own life. Don't do that. I pray that you'll understand today that by trusting Christ, he will be involved in your life. And in a way that he wants to be involved, which is more than we can ask or imagine. So while that bracelet WWJD is a wonderful reminder to us that we should be about God's work, we also can trust that no matter how overwhelming the situation is or how deep the suffering is, there are things that only God can do and we must trust him to do his part. If you are living your life in your own power and authority today, I pray that you'll change that. If you are somebody who has been experiencing deep suffering in this life, or you've been carrying the burden of a family member who is suffering deeply, I just want to encourage you, come down front today and unfold your heart to our care volunteers. Just like that father didn't just share, here's what I need to share with you. He shared more. I'm asking you, please find the family of God and share your suffering with them. And if someone, if you are blessed to have someone who is suffering come into your life, you continually bring them back to God over and over and over and over again, and you spend time in their presence, loving them with your ears and your heart. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we want you to heal. We want you to cast out any demons that are exercising their influence in this place and in our community. God, it is by your power alone that those things can happen. But God, our faith struggles. We struggle, God. If there's anything lacking inside of us, God, bolster our faith. Strengthen us so that we are ready when people thrust their suffering on us to enter into that situation by the authority given to us by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray if there are those in our church who are suffering today, I pray that you heal I pray that they feel the closeness that you want with them. And I pray, God, that they will live in confident hope that one day, and it may be here on this earth, but one day when you come back for your family, they will be healed. God, help us this week 
to bring the authority of Jesus Christ into our workplaces, into our homes, into our families, and with our friends. And we pray that we see something extraordinary this week because of you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things and all God's people said, amen. One of the ways that you can grow closer to God is through prayer. And throughout this week, spend time with God in prayer. Thank Him for what He's done in your life. And ask Him what He wants you to know at this time. Pray to God in all situations you face this week. Next week, we'll continue the series, Extraordinary, to prepare. Read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. And one way you can do this is getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our connections team. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave a review so that others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ. We're so grateful that you listened. Have a great week.